Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Today we're talking about human height. We're talking about the, the limits of human height. We're talking about giant humans, short humans. Uh, so it seemed like the most natural place to begin this discussion is, of course, with 1957's classic film, some of you may remember it from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Some of you may uh, have just experienced it straight up. The Amazing Colossal Man. Now, Robert, I'm sitting here looking at this looping gif that you put in our outline of uh, of a gigantic dude who seems to be filmed with like rear projection to make him look bigger than he is, uh, mm-hmm. throwing some sort of instrument uh, that seems hand-sized for him, but he's impaling a, a tiny, tiny person with it. Oh, yes, this is a great scene because yeah. he's uh, the, the character is is uh, Glenn Manning, Lieutenant Colonel Glenn Manning. There's an atomic blast. He ends up growing uncontrollably. He loses all his hair and his clothes, except for you know a loincloth that I assume is made out of a sail made out of sailcloth or something. Yeah. And uh, there's a scene where they they're trying to arrest his growth by jabbing him with this giant hypodermic needle. Oh, which, I see. Of course, looks like a giant hypodermic needle. Uh-huh. Um, so they they come in, they jab him, and then he picks the thing up, looks at it with anger, and then just throws it down like a javelin and impales a dude. It's a classic scene. So this was 1957, and this was this was part of the era of filmmaking in America where it was it was just giant everything all the time, mm-hmm. giant bugs, giant you know leeches, giant rats, giant what else? Giant giant spiders, of mm-hmm. course, giant plenty spider, of those grasshoppers, praying mantises. I mean, yeah, you you name it. If it looked good, or if it just looked passable in mm-hmm. giant form. Somebody was blowing that thing up. I think so, they'd figured out how to do rear projection technology that looked okay in film, uh, and so th- they were like, "Oh God, we can make anything look, you know, hugely out of proportion. Let's just exploit this to the max for fifteen years." Yeah, and then throw it up on a drive-in. The kids will come and see it. Yeah, and of course, the plot was always atomic radiation, right? As yeah. it was in this case. So, in the Amazing Colossal Man, the guy you said he gets uh, irradiated by a nuclear blast. I think he actually he he's like a he's there observing the blast from the safety of a trench, but he gets up out of the trench mm-hmm. to rescue somebody or something. Yeah, like it's, that. it's a, you know it's an heroic act, but uh-huh. bam, he gets blasted. Yeah. It's a great scene of him just standing there at the with the the radiation washing over him, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and he's reborn as this colossal uh, being, uh, and it begins messing with his mind too. Yeah. Sort of, sort of similar to Beast of Yucca Flats. Same thing happens to Tor Johnson in that. He gets oh, yeah. hit with an atomic blast, and instead of <laughs> vaporizing him, burning him up, it just kind of makes him look crazy, makes him look a little bit bigger, and he has some oatmeal on his face. Yeah, but then, but the thing is, I mean, I don't want to undersell Tor as an actor, but uh, uh, Glenn uh, Langan, who plays uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Glenn Manning in the in the film here, like he brings uh, he brings a certain amount of at times hammy, but still legitimate humanity to this character where you end up feeling for him. Like he's meeting his, his wife. Uh, you know, he's, he still has his humanity about him. He's even as the, 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 the condition begins to go to his head. Uh huh. So you think this is actually a pretty good B movie, right? Yeah. I mean, going into it, knowing what to expect out of a B movie, I think this is a great B movie. I think uh-huh. this is just a, a fabulous example of, uh, particularly of, of A-bomb B movies. Uh huh. Directed by. Oh, yes, the great Bird Eye Gordon. Bert I. Gordon. So he he's actually still alive, isn't he? Yeah, um, I was looking him up, and yeah, he was born in 1922. He's still kicking, 
at 92 as of this recording. And IMDb claims that he directed a film in 2014 or 2015. So Okay. So Bert I. Gordon, you, you might have noticed his initials are B-I-G. Uh, this, uh, this, he didn't, uh, as far as I know, he didn't change his name to be like this. It's just a happy coincidence <laughs> that, uh, Bert I. Gordon was known as Mr. Big, Mr. B-I-G, uh, because he loved to make movies about things that grow bigger than they usually can. Uh, so other movies of Bert I. Gordon's include War of the Colossal Beast. That's the follow-up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's The Spider or Earth versus the Spider that has a larger than normal spider. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like a suitcase size spider. It's like a giant spider. Like yeah, I mean, you got to go go big with your giant spider. Like Shelob size yeah. pretty much. Uh, and then there is Village of the Giants. There's King Dinosaur, which has a fun Mystery Science Theater uh, episode mm-hmm. in which astronauts travel to a planet full of giant reptiles, and then they sort of flirt and romance each other. And then there's a lizard that is supposed to be a T-Rex, I think. And then the astronauts nuke the planet to wipe out indigenous life and make it safe for human colonization. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the beginning of the end, another Mystery Science Theater episode. But that movie has a Midwestern town threatened by giant grass. Grasshoppers again, atomic radiation. Yeah, but since we're talking about human height primarily today, back to the, the amazing colossal man. Yeah, so nobody's gonna gonna bring up the amazing colossal man as like a perfect example of of science, uh-huh. but it does at least flirt with some of these ideas because you have this this guy. He's gigantic. He's powerful. And yet he seems to be in a fair amount of, of just constant misery. Uh-huh. Um, and it's been a little while since I actually have, have seen it, but I, I, I seem to recall that not only there, there's, there's elements of it affecting his mind, mm-hmm. but, uh, but perhaps just being that big is at least a little bit painful as well. Um, and the, the the mind thing is interesting. I, I have a feeling in the in the in the film it's more about like radiation or something mm-hmm. uh, affecting his mind, making him a little crazy, a little hostile. But I can't help but wonder if it has something to do with the with blood flow to his head. Oh yeah, like you're just trying to scale up the human body that things aren't necessarily going to work right. Yeah, because as we'll discuss, that's a major issue when you start thinking about gigantic human bodies or gigantic bodies of any kind. Um, for after, after all, look at the giraffe, right? Yeah. Tallest vertebrate on Earth, uh, and and uh, it has to uh, exert quite a bit of energy to pump blood up to its brain. It has, like, an amazing amount of hypertension. I mean, the, the same kind of hypertension that would cause vascular damage to a human being and, and eventually perhaps lead to uh, internal injury and death is just normal for a giraffe because it's got to get all the blood up the neck to the brain. And then when it lowers its head to drink... <laughs> gravity, you can't have gravity then, like, sending all this blood to the head and, what, making the giraffe's head explode? Yeah. Nobody wants that. And that's why the giraffes have this uh, system uh, known as the rete mirabile, and that's Latin for wonderful net. Uh, and it's uh, just this net of arteries and veins that diverts some of the blood flow, equalizing the giraffe's blood pressure when the animal lowers its head. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's like a natural uh, release valve to keep you from living in a world full of exploding giraffes. But it's an example of how <laughs> to have a creature that big, you have to have additional engineering constraints thrown in there yeah. uh, to allow that creature to live on that scale. Yes, and though the amazing uh, colossal man didn't get into a lot of the details of the science of what it would take to scale up a human body, other other writers have sort of dealt with this, right? 
Um, yeah, you know, I I have not read a lot of uh, the, I, you know, I guess as far as a literary trope, the the giant humanoid is not really explored all that much. <laughs> but uh, the late horror writer uh, Michael Shea, he explored this a little bit in his novel uh, Nif, uh, one of his Nifthalene novels, Minds of the Behemoth. Uh, which is a fine, fine work of dark fantasy uh, that I highly recommend to anyone out there looking for that sort of thing. But he also wove a lot of science into his work. And at one point in this book, we encounter a human who has grown to colossal size, but he's so colossal that like he, he basically is just in constant pain. Mm-hmm. He can't even sit up. He has to just crawl into the ocean and float away uh, just because the, the body, the proportions of his body are not made to support that kind of mass. Now, wasn't there an old theory? I, I can't remember where I read this, but I remember hearing there was some old theory that these the largest of the dinosaurs, say like a brachiosaur or something like that, mm-hmm. could only exist by uh, by standing around in water all the time to partially support its weight with buoyancy. Yeah, I've read some of those as well. In fact, we have an article on HowStuffWorks.com uh, that I put together, like what's the largest land animal that ever mm-hmm. lived in um, tease apart some of these issues with the sauropods. Yeah, but for uh, to whatever extent that was ever proposed as a theory, I don't think that is believed today. Right. And the other, of course, important thing, you look at these most massive creatures, the most massive land creatures living today uh, are definitely walking around on four legs. The sauropods walked around on four legs. So um, it's it's very difficult to imagine a bipedal creature of that size. But then again, we have examples like the Tyrannosaurus rex, a bipedal creature that True. was extremely large. And there are actually uh, there are larger di- bipedal dinosaurs than the Tyrannosaurus rex. Yeah, not quite as big as the sauropods, but certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so we should look at the issue of height and size in humans, because obviously you don't have to look any further than the science fiction films of the 50s to see this general obsession with the idea of things being bigger than normal uh, humans and other animals. But while we're captivated with height and size and that kind of simple, brutal part mm-hmm. of our brains, we also have this counter-narrative running, right, where uh, in our literature and folklore, there's always this story of the smaller person defeating the larger person. Right? Oh, yeah. David and Goliath to Jack and the Beanstalk, which, you know, the folklorists say is a variation on this very ancient story they called the boy who stole the ogre's treasure. There are a lot of variations on the story. And then uh, in the modern day, we have, uh, for example, Bruce Lee always beating the bigger guy, right? Or all the guys. I haven't seen a film where Bruce Lee does not just beat everyone up. It's true. To but the point of boredom, where it's like, really, these villains don't have a shot. They, they seem to know that the thing you want to see most is this little guy, this little mm-hmm. Bruce Lee, just killing somebody who's much bigger than him by punching him to death. And how would we fit uh, Master Blaster into this scenario? Master Bl- Mad, ah. Mad Max taking on Master Blaster, who himself is a giant with a little person on his shoulder. That seems to subvert the trope, doesn't yeah. it? So anyway, we, we've obviously got this obsession we're we're very into the idea of size as a basic indicator about how we should judge other people mm-hmm. uh and that sort of makes sense i mean it doesn't make sense morally judging other people by their size but it sort of makes a biological sense uh wh- why we would have these instincts uh, and and height is a sort of basic biometric indicator. For example, it's useful for scientists to track because uh, it can be objectively measured, though not always with perfect actor- accuracy because, you know, your height varies a little bit from different parts of the day. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be exactly the same every time you measure it. But it's correlated with other important facts like nutrition and health. 
and in humans, height is, of course, on average sexually dimorphic. We know this average male height is usually a few inches taller than average female height. Mm-hmm. One thing that I was really interested in was I was wondering if there's any population of humans on Earth where that's not the case. And I couldn't find evidence of it, but I wonder if there is one out there. That would be kind of cool to know. It would. Yeah, so 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 far, just talking about human height, as we've discussed, you have you have sort of the um, the, the 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 inherent sexism in the in the situation, right? Men, right. Men on average are taller, and there and therefore we're putting this uh, focus on uh, on height being a, a, an indicator of power. Yeah. Um, certainly, increased height can conceivably be an advantage in various combat scenarios. Right. Though, of course, a lot of that depends, um, most of that uh, depends on the skill of the fighters involved. And, of course, just linguistically, right? Even if you're in a profession where really the height of an individual has no role at all, you'll still hear people say, like, oh, well... He's a giant in the industry, or oh, she's a she's a looming figure in her profession, right? Or or you might hear someone put down and say, oh, well that that was very small of them to do that. Like what what do all those words even mean? You know, we, we're 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 still populating as if it's Game of Thrones and we're surrounded by giants and dwarves and giant blooded people. Yeah, but even if you are not, say, pro- applying to be a pro wrestler or something like that, there are jobs such as, for example, being a salesperson mm-hmm. where somebody might hire you based on height because they know that the uh, the inherent biases of the customers might favor somebody who's taller. Right. So one of the big scientific questions about human height would obviously be what controls human height. Right. It's a clear fact of nature that we see obvious, you know, metric differences in the height of different adult individuals. So where does this difference come from? And I found, according to a uh, 2006 explainer I found in Scientific American by molecular biologist Chow Kung Lai and uh, Gene Mayer of the U.S. Department of Agriculture Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging at Tufts, 20 to 40 percent of differences in human height are controlled by environmental factors and 60 to 80 percent are controlled by genetics. Uh, so scientists have arrived at these numbers through uh, a number of different means, including things like twin studies, you know, mm-hmm. studying people who, OK, so we have monozygotic twins here. They should have pretty much the same genes, uh, but can we see any variations in height between them or between them and other siblings and sibling studies? Uh, depending on what gen, uh, what environmental factors they're getting, such as nutrition, especially nutrition in early childhood, early childhood health, uh, access to health care and things like that. And from this, they, they've discovered that the rate of influence of genes and environmental factors is variable, but it's variable around these basic ranges. But one thing that is true is that on average, humans today are significantly taller than they were a few hundred years ago. You ever notice this? Like if you, I mean, it's clear if you just look at environments and mm-hmm. uh, appliances designed for people a long time ago, there are lower ceilings, lower doorways, smaller beds, smaller pieces of clothing. Suits it's, of armor was one I believe you, you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, and so I, though that's an interesting one because I was looking into that and then I couldn't, I have this impression that I've seen suits of armor that appear kind of small 
compared to what I would think of as a, you know, a large warrior today. Uh, but I was looking for evidence of this online and I couldn't really find anything uh, saying that suits of armor are smaller than we would expect them to be. So it made me wonder if suits of armor being made for the nobility and military classes of previous eras may actually have been larger than would have been required for the regular people of uh, those times. Because as we've discussed in previous episodes, we have these examples of noble individuals, ruling class individuals from hundreds and hundreds of years ago who still were tremendously hot, tall even by today's standards. Oh, yeah. What, remember old Krogan Man? Yeah. Old Krogan Man, the bog body. What was he, like 6'4 or 6'6? Six, yeah, six? yeah, yeah. He Just was incredibly he was tall. A tall dude. Um, and, and, of course, history is full of these stories sometimes i mean a lot of times you have to take them with a grain of salt right because mm-hmm. there's a ruler and he was really tall do i believe you was he really really tall or was he just was he just always standing on something or is this just you know the the myth and the legend of the man right like one that always comes to my mind and, and this is i think in large part because my my dad would tell me stories uh, like this as a kid but um uh, uh, in 1066, uh, the events of 1066, uh, you know, Battle of Hastings and, and all that. You got stories of 1066 yeah. when you were a kid? Yeah, my dad would tell me uh, about all that. Uh, oh, that's pretty cool. So, of course, you had, uh, you know, three different uh, forces vying for control there. You had um, uh, Harold Godwinson, uh, King of England. You had uh, William the Conqueror uh-huh. coming up uh, from uh, from the continent. And then, of course, you had Harold Hadreda, the King of Norway. And uh, he was, uh, according to, to many accounts here, he was taller than most men. Mm-hmm. And um, Harold Godwinson makes a, a quip that he's going to, uh, uh, he's going to offer him something, and he's going to offer him six feet of English soil, or perhaps more. Sometimes they say perhaps seven feet of English soil, since he's taller than most men. Uh-huh. Um, the idea that he's going to, you know, gift him the grave uh, here, but uh, but yeah, here, here's a giant uh, in in history. Uh, to what extent was he an actual giant? I'm not sure, but um, but certainly we have tales like this of of and and in some cases skeletal evidence of uh-huh. tall noble individuals. And yet we have evidence that the average person of uh, of 150 years ago or earlier, maybe you know even going back longer than that, was mm-hmm. just not as tall as the average person from the same ethnic groups and societies are today. And so why are people taller today? You know, w- one of the obvious questions is. Has height been selected for as a gene? Uh, Has there been evolution? Are we evolving taller? And I I would postulate, we can get into why in a moment. I don't think that seems to be the cause. It doesn't look like it. I think scientists think that the change in human height is more due to environmental factors, that 20 to 40 percent I was talking about earlier, rather than major changes in the genetic factors controlling height. And this would make sense given what we know about improved access to healthcare and nutrition around the world. Right. Yeah. A lot of the uh, a lot of the material that I was looking at for this was definitely focusing in on England and looking at uh, industrial heights. You know, the industrial age heights and how they differed uh, between the classes. Uh huh. So over the last 150 years, um, we have seen the average height of people in, in, in industrialized nations increase approximately 10 centimeters or about four inches. Okay. That's nothing to sniff at. No, no. Now it, a lot of people would, would pay dearly for an extra 10 centimeters. Yeah, it's true. Uh, or certainly, uh, you know, glue it on the bottom of their shoes. <laughs> but, but anyway, it's interesting that this should occur, right? Because 
you think that evolution would be selecting for shorter heights because huh. based on previous studies, we know that you find taller heights and fewer offspring among wealthy industrial British families of the time. Um, but also you find shorter offspring among the poor and the poor are having more offspring. So wouldn't it mean that the short poor are going to inherit the earth because they're just going to outnumber and outbreed the tall, rich people? Huh. But it doesn't seem to play out that way. Uh, and most geneticists yeah, believe that it's uh, that what, what we've seen here, what's been the driving force in force increased heights has been the improvement in childhood nutrition. Uh, and that, and that has been the most important factor in allowing humans to increase so dramatically in size. So, there are a few different, uh, facts that kind of support this. So, height increases only begin to manifest somewhere around the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and we do see dips in times and places of World War related famine. So, we can see oh, that yeah. prove it out. So, here's, here's an area that we saw a significant decrease in nutritional um, quality, and therefore heights went down as well. The next generation, you mean, is yeah. shorter. And then the trend toward increasing height is actually largely leveled off, suggesting that there is an upper limit to height uh, beyond which our genes are just not equipped to take us, regardless of the environmental improvements. Oh, okay. So you're saying, like, if we get improved, uh, improved diet and access to health care as children... We're sort of trending further toward the upper range of natural human height. We're not right. extending what the range is. Yeah, there's no, there's no quantity of carrots or no quantities of multivitamins that are going to get you beyond what is essentially like just the normal threshold for uh-huh. what we are as a species, right? Um, you know, in the same way, there's not, there's not a multivitamin you can take that's going to make you grow an extra arm. Right. Um, and also we have unless it's one of those atomic radiation yeah. multivitamins from the right. 50s. And uh, and this kind of goes back to some of the data that um, has to do with famine, but uh, conditions of poor nutrition are well correlated to smaller stature. So we've seen that uh, borne out time and time again. Yeah. So that's not like a tenuous uh, right. hypothesis of modern science. We pretty much know now that if you're a kid and you don't get good nutrition, you won't be as tall. Exactly. So, you know, the, the, the answer there, why, why are people taller today? It's a, it's as exciting and unexciting as all of that. <laughs> so yeah, to answer the question, why are people taller the de- today than they were in the past? Well, it, it basically comes down to nutrition. Well, that's interesting, but then again, it, it makes me wonder how size does vary when it comes to, uh, to genetic change over time. Because mm-hmm. like, you, you obviously do see size changes in the, in the average size of a, a population of animals over time, uh, the norm does go up and down. Right. So w- what happens there? When that happens, how does it happen? Well, one of the, the more interesting uh, scenarios that occurs is, has to do with the, the island rule, also known as Foster's Rule, named for J. Bristol Foster uh, in 1964. Uh, and this, is, this has to do with what happens when you take uh, an, you know, an existing organism and landed on an island somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so generally speaking, when one species arrives on an island, it can change forms in ways that don't necessarily generate a new species. So body size conforms to what we call the island rule. And it, it holds true for various vertebrates. So large specimens, they become small. Small species become large. And one of the more uh, <laughs> extreme examples of this is the the dwarfism of megafauna during the Ice Age. This oh, is when yeah. we saw dwarf elephants in Ice Age Sicily and the small woolly mammoths of Wrangel Island in Siberia. So how big were they? 
Well, I mean, you couldn't fit them in your in your pocket, but noticeably smaller. Uh-huh. Like uh, uh, I would say, small enough to be cute based on the uh, the the average size of the normal organism. Uh-huh. So the basic idea just here is that smaller creatures get larger when predation pressure is l- relaxed due to the absence of some mainland predators, and larger creatures become smaller when food resources are limited due to land constraints. Ah, that's interesting. So the thing about smaller creatures becoming larger in the absence of predators, that points out one natural advantage to being smaller, which Mm -hmm. is that it's, you know, you, you are not as delicious and nutritious of a treat, and it's easier for you to hide. Right. Uh, so there, there are plenty of selection pressures that would favor being not as large as one could be, uh, not having the maximum size allowed by your body plan. And I think that's something that's going to be interesting to keep in mind, uh, especially for a thing I want to talk about later on. So I know what everyone's wondering. How does the island rule affect humans? Well, most of the time you don't see humans thrown into these scenarios. Mm-hmm. And certainly some people may be thinking, oh, well, pygmies, right? Um but in those situations, there seem to be a lot more. Um, there are a lot more factors at play there, including nutrition. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's difficult to just apply the straight, simplistic island rule to the scenario. But uh, some have theorized that Homo floresiensis, also known as Flores Man or you know Hobbit Man, what oh, this yeah. is the, you, in you the probably popular press, a in lot of people. Press yeah, they were Hobbit. calling him Hobbit. Yeah. So some have theorized that this is an example of of island uh, island rule island dwarfism at play with a humanoid uh, creature mm-hmm. uh, this was this uh, particular specimen was discovered in 2003 at uh, Langbo on the island of uh, Flores in Indonesia and it's from numbers vary on this i've seen the the number drift in both directions as uh, additional research has been conducted but it seems like 50,000 years ago is a general timeline we can stick to um uh, then there's a 2007 paper that came out titled Primates Follow the Island Rule Implications for Interpreting Homo Floresiensis by Lindell Broham and Marcel Cardillo. And they argued that, that, uh, that, that primates do follow the rule. And they used a, a comparative database of 39 independently derived island endemic primate species and subspecies to demonstrate that primates do conform to the island rule. Small-bodied primates tend to get larger on islands, and large-bodied primates get smaller. Hmm. Uh, furthermore, large species, they argued, undergo a proportionally greater reduction in the size on islands. But again, that being said, human height uh, especially is far more complex th- than this. Uh, anytime you take you know, the, the human organism and you start laying over all these various cultural concerns, uh, when you start throwing in war and uh, and and our more complex relationship with nutrition, yeah, um, it's it's very difficult to just apply this rule uh, to humans in a in a fast and slick way. Another thing would be timescales. Yes, I mean I, I think that within the timescales we'd be working with observing human history, there is not nearly as much time for uh, for significant genetic evolutionary changes to accumulate like this. Uh, so you might uh, you might have, for example, sexual selection among humans or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, tending people toward, you know, the, a certain end of the natural spectrum. But the time factor is going to cause significant problems for seeing uh, large, very noticeable changes in the human genome over, uh, you know, a, the short period of history we have access to. Yeah. Indeed. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to jump right back into this topic. And, hey, we're going to talk about Phantasm a little bit. 
Hey, everybody, you know in this day and age, you've got to have a website. You've got to have a professional-looking website that represents you, that represents your work, that represents your identity. But here's the thing. Not everybody has the money to spend on a super fancy web designer. Not everybody has the tech expertise to go in there and tinker with a bunch of code. And that is where Squarespace comes in. It's easy. You create your own website with Squarespace using simple easy-to-use tools. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. You get a free custom domain. You get beautiful templates to play with and seamless commerce tools. All of it works so easily. You don't have to have, you don't have to know code. You don't have to have any kind of technical expertise because the, the tools are that elegant. Plus, you have 24-7 customer support to walk you through any issues. So if you're looking to revamp your current website or create an all-new one for some other venture, then Squarespace is right here for for you. So you can you can actually start a free trial with them today at squarespace.com by entering our offer code mindblown to get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that offer code is mindblown squarespace.com build yourself a new website. All right, we're back. Uh, Joe, you've seen Phantasm, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, can you uh, refresh the the listeners out there um, about the details? in this uh, cinematic masterpiece. Well, Phantasm is a 1979 horror movie. Don Coscarelli, is that the guy who directed it? That's the man. Yeah, okay. So the main characters in the... Oh, God, could I even explain what the plot is? I don't know what the plot is. (laughs) That's kind of the beauty of it, right? Yeah, essentially the main characters get chased around by this guy known as the Tall Man, who is a grim, dour funeral director who, who shows his teeth and he squints his eyes and he's got lanky, gross hair. And this guy runs around a cemetery stealing corpses for strange purposes we can get to in a moment. And he kills people with a flying silver ball that jams itself into your head and then drills you with some sort of extremely uh, prodigious blood funnel that Mm -hmm. just pumps all the blood out of your head uh, out a jet in the back. Anyway... Uh, that guy was played by Angus Scrim, and uh, the, he's the actor who played the tall man. He was only about 6'4 in real life, or so I read, but they used a bunch of movie tricks to make him seem taller. I think they gave him tall shoes, and they put him in a tight suit and stuff like or that. shot him at the right angles, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what is the tall man, when we find out what he's doing, spoiler for this 1979 movie, <laughs> when we find out his whole plot... Uh, what is it that the tall man is going about doing with these stolen corpses? Well, he has a whole industry. Um, and, uh-huh. and I forget how many of these details are presented in the first film and how many come out in the subsequent films. But essentially, he seems to be from another planet or another dimension. And he is taking the corpses, crunching them down into little undead dwarfs that presumably are being sent through this stargate to serve as slave labor <laughs> on another planet. Uh-huh. And the idea here, I guess, is that this other planet has is, is, a, is a larger world, there's a greater gravity, and therefore you need crunch-down bodies to serve as the labor. Uh, he's also, I think, using brains from the corpses to make the uh, flying silver balls of death. Uh-huh. And, of course, it, it this, this shines potential new light on his height. Okay, so he's crunching oh. down creatures to go to this other world. He's tall on ours, so does that mean 
is he sh- is he shorter on another world? Is he a normal size? Oh, and like he gets how power here. So when Superman comes to uh, the solar system with the yellow sun, he gets special abilities. When the tall man comes to a planet with much lower gravity in this sort of relaxed atmosphere, he almost sort of unwinds or uncoils and grows taller. Yeah, that would be a great scene for any remake they do, where the tall man steps out of the the little stargate here, and then you just his spine elongates like by like a foot or so. Just well that. That's funny because it actually is a fact that human beings grow taller in lower microgravity environments, uh, not that much taller. I don't think, you know, a normal high average height uh, adult male would reach the size of Angus Scrim or even uh, the size of Angus Scrim in all of his tall man uh, accoutrement. But it definitely is true that astronauts, for example, get taller while they're in the International Space Station. That's right. Uh, and NASA's known about this for a while. Uh, you go on a trip into, into orbit, and you can add up to 3% in height uh, while you're up there. So if you're six feet tall, that's that's two inches. That's uh-huh. you know, nothing to sneeze at. And that's because uh, when the spine is free from the constraints of gravity, the vertebrae can expand and relax. Now, once you get back on Earth, everything sinks back down to normal. But for a little bit, you gain, you know, maybe a couple of inches. I read, actually, that once you come back to Earth, you, you return to normal height extremely rapidly. <laughs> it takes, like, less than two days. Uh, so when astronaut Scott Kelly returned from 340 days in space, that's a long time. Right. He was on the ISS. Uh, Scott Kelly came back uh, earlier this year in 2016. He'd grown about 1.5 inches while he was in the ISS. And when he returned, his uh, his normal height was restored within about 28 hours. And of course, this would mean the same. The same thing would hold true for low gravity worlds. Take Mars, for instance, uh, which has just one third of Earth's gravity. Oh yeah, yeah. So that would conceivably be a factor there if you were to, you know, visit it for an extended length of time. And certainly, if you're talking about long term human habitats, uh, Mars settlement proponent uh, Robert uh, Zubrin, who I actually interviewed a few years back, a very, very, very passionate dude about Mars uh, colonization. Like he is. He is of the the mindset we should we should be doing it yesterday, uh, and here are all the reasons we should and we can. Uh, so, uh, certainly, I recommend checking out any interviews with the, with the man. He's very. Did he try to sign you up for the Mars death trip? No, no. But he was he was very passionate because uh, I think it was uh, it was an article that I did for Discovery News asking the question. You know, is it morally cool to? terraform another world uh-huh. and there were some that are saying well no you you know you don't we don't want to just go willy-nilly with it with the terraforming you want to be respectful you want don't want to disrupt the evidence of past life or certainly get in the way of any present life that might be there or future life but Zubrin he uh, presented the opposite uh, argument that yeah. yeah we should definitely be there we should go there it's a dead world. Let's do it. I've actually read a lot about that. I think that's a very interesting debate. Like, what mm-hmm. what should be our ethical obligations when dealing with other planets? Do we have the right to make them Earth, too, if we have that ability? Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole episode of, essentially on the Prime Directive, right? Yeah. Um, but now, how does the Prime Directive apply to potentially dead worlds? Yeah. And, yeah. and who are we to label a world dead? You know, because we have just have this one idea of what life is, right? Yeah. 
So anyway, uh, Zubrin has has uh, spoken a great deal about Mars colonization issues, and one of the things that has come up is he's theorized that children born on low-gravity worlds like Mars would have a few inches on everyone else. Uh, but you'd have problems uh, adjusting to high-gravity worlds like Earth if you ever tried to go on a pilgrimage here, and indeed you might not be able to return home at all. Or uh, there might be problems inherently, yeah. like even with the low-gravity world. I mean, we've never seen what a microgravity or low-gravity environment does to a human body over a really long term. Like, the longest we've ever seen is what happens when you stay in a space station for, you know, a year or, or right. whatever amount of time the longest space station stay is now. I think Kelly was up there. If he's not the longest, he's one of them. Uh, but anyway... Astronauts report back pain. I don't know if you've read about this, but, uh, you know, according to materials provided by the ISS program science office, lower back pain is 68% more prevalent in space than on Earth. Mm-hmm. And is this caused by the lack of the intervertebral disc compression due to gravity? It's the same thing that makes you taller. The same thing that makes you taller actually when you're lying down horizontally as you sleep at night. In the morning, you get up, you're taller than you were when you went to bed. Uh, does being separated from that that downward pull of Earth's gravity, I mean, obviously, we didn't evolve to be like that for long, long periods of time. So what does that do to you? It it might have some less than positive effects. Yeah. And certainly every human child ever born has been born on Earth. No one's ever been born in space. So we have no idea what human development might be like in a lower uh, a lower gravity scenario. So with all of those concerns in place and the idea that being raised in a microgravity environment might really mess you up in all kinds of ways, it is possible that growing up in low gravity or microgravity might make you taller. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> yeah, so if, if nothing else, you could, you could, you could cling to that uh, reassuring fact. Because as we've touched on already, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of weird human hangups when it comes to height. And oh, there's yeah. an entire psychology to human height. Oh man, there, there are a bunch of studies looking into this. Uh, and, and it kind of makes sense why there would be a strong psychology of height. You know, height is a, primal survival signifier, right? Mm -hmm. It advertises physical strength, reach, health, and good nutrition. And so for this reason, I think it's not surprising that humans have some natural tendencies when it comes to our psychological relationship with human height. I think there's... uh, there, for example, is this pervasive notion that taller people have more social and economic success, that they're more persuasive, more impressive, that they, you know, they just get, they're just go getters and they, that all good things come to them. In fact, I remember I, I had a, teacher in high school who uh, who told us one time, I don't know what his source was for this. He, maybe it was just his own wisdom. He was making it up. But I remember he told us that uh, that uh, if you want to uh, if you want to persuade people or, or to be a good leader, the most important thing is height. And the second most important thing is being funny. Mm-hmm. I think the emphasis being on how, well, if you're not tall, you better darn well be pretty funny. Well, I mean, that makes sense. Look at Jeff Goldblum. Seems like a funny guy. Very tall guy. I'd Very follow him anywhere. Yeah. yeah. He could he could tell us all to jump into a volcano and I'd be pretty sure he had a good reason. <laughs> uh, but anyway, is there anything true to this or is it just another unsubstantiated folk myth based on our biases? Uh, so there was one huge landmark, highly cited paper from 2004 about this in the Journal of Applied Psychology by Timothy A. Judge and Daniel M. Cable. And they did this deep investigation on the, you know, what could be known at the time about the correlation between height and 
success. And they certainly did find a strong correlation between height of a human and, for example, career success. And so it was summarized by the American Psychological Association as uh, with this startling fact. For someone who is six feet tall, Mm -hmm. they earn on average $166,000 more during a 30-year career than somebody who is five feet and five inches tall, even when controlling for other factors that could contribute to that, like gender, age, and weight. Hmm. They found that taller men and taller women are both more successful in their careers, but that the correlation is stronger for taller men. And there are fascinating questions that come along with research like this, because all, all you know what they can establish is the correlation. They can't, right. they can't necessarily show exactly why this is true. Uh, so you could have lots of hypotheses, hypotheses like some people would say, uh, is it true that tall Taller people are smarter, and that's why they make more money. And that doesn't appear to be the case. Though th- I think there have been some studies attempting to link uh, height with intelligence that they didn't find that that, that was the primary explanation. Uh, so could it be that taller people are just respected more by others? And, you know, the boss looks at a tall person and says, you look like you deserve a raise. <laughs> or could it be that the way tall people are treated by others leads to more self-actualizing behaviors and, you know, makes people more confident, go in and ask for the raise more often. There, there are a lot of ways you could try to explain things like this. Uh, like maybe in, in a cubicle environment when they stand up. Uh, it's easier to see their heads, so the boss sees them more often. Yeah. Or perhaps their brain is closer to heaven, <laughs> just by virtue of height. Yeah. How does this all make you feel today, Robert? You, you, you being one of the taller people in our office. Um, I, you know, I, I do. I kind of like second guess the role of height a lot in my daily life. You know, mm-hmm. like I, like I find myself second guessing. Um, you know, things that go right where I'm like, oh, did this, did, did my height play into this? And then I start thinking of studies like this and it's like, is this just all a, a virtue of me being a little bit tall? Um, and then, and then of course I curse my height when I bump into things. And then I, then I wonder like, well, do I, I actually end up looking like, uh, like an ungainly tall person, uh, as I'm walking around the office and therefore I'm like, I don't fit in as well. Like I'm more of a, like a freak, you know? Yeah, you really are. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, no, no. I mean, uh, being tall might be another one of those things where, uh, we discovered that there are just natural biases at play. For example, like, uh, the natural advantages or privileges some people might enjoy for being male in the workplace. Right. You know, sometimes you're just going to be treated differently and you might benefit from that. Yeah, uh, and I guess like you just end up just, like second guessing like how everyone around you is interpreting things. Like I've often found it weird. Like I've always been taller than my bosses, mm-hmm. and obviously being tall has nothing to do with being or being short. And height has nothing to do with your ability to lead in a, a workplace or be an effective boss. But for some reason, there's always this like weird, like, I don't know if it's like a grade school or lizard brain voice in the back of my head that's always like, like, is this weird that my boss is shorter than me? Uh, is my boss going to hold it against me because I'm taller? Like, as if, as if like one cave, yes. <laughs> as if one caveman is going to rise <laughs> against the others, like he must be punished because he is taller than me. Uh-huh. But still, like, you can't help but, but hear those just nutty, paranoid voices from time to time. That's great, Robert. I hope you will always share what these voices are telling you with me. <laughs> like I ha- it probably has to be the same for people with great beards. Um, um, and you have a pretty great beard yourself. Oh, I, I, I don't know about that. I, 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 I do not grow that, that great of a beard. 
So if I had, a, if I were to have a great beard and I was to have a boss with a lesser beard, like that would feel a little weird. Like I would, I don't want my, my beard to get me in trouble because of its boldness. Uh, yeah. Well, the beard and the, uh, and the height thing again, this comes into, I wonder if this is, uh, this is natural sexism in our mindset also playing yeah. into, uh, because of the sexual dimorphism of height, the fact that on average men are taller. I, I wonder if sexism also plays a role. Like if height in some way, uh, manifests in our minds as some attribute of manliness mm-hmm. and because we have this unconscious bias favoring manliness uh, is that another reason that we pay tribute to to the tallest yeah the tallest and uh, an accidental invader zim reference there where the uh, the leaders of uh, zim's race alien invader race um, they are called referred to as the tallest uh-huh. they are the tallest of their species though clearly they've been augmented with uh, with outfits and machinery to make them appear taller oh they're cheating oh yeah they're cheating yeah, like they're crazy. lifting yeah yeah they're definitely lifting uh but yeah the, the tallest well this brings us to the question i think that uh that maybe we could conclude with which is how tall exactly could humans grow we've talked about how Humans have gotten, on average, a little bit taller over time, though this doesn't seem to be from, you know, serious genetic mutation or, or evolution, but more through nutrition and access to health care. But I- imagine we were, for example, able to genetically alter the human race. You know, we're going to go in and tinker with our genes and try to create the world's tallest human. Hmm. Could we make a human that was like Glenn Manning? Could we make a 50 foot human? Could we make, you know, attack of the 50 foot woman? That's another uh, B movie about the giant human. Could we make a hundred foot tall human or even just being more modest? Could we make a 15 foot tall human? Okay. Uh, are, are any of these things really possible or would we hit insurmountable problems? Well, I guess it's easy to shoot down the more extremes first. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then scale back down. Uh, because yeah, when you're talking about Glenn Manning, when you're talking about Godzilla, King Kong, any of the, or any of these various giant creature movies we've discussed already, um, there are engineering limits to the body size. Yeah, and I, I would totally agree with that. I think that uh, unfortunately for the people who want to, you know, change their their genetic code to be 20 feet tall, it's just not going to happen. That's right. just not the way humans are going to work, and we'll try to explain why. So, the tallest man who ever lived, as far as we know, was a guy, an American guy named Robert Wadlow, who at the time of his death was eight feet and 11.1 inches tall. That's almost nine feet tall, 272 centimeters. That is so tall. Yeah. If you see pictures of this guy, you're probably not imagining him tall enough. Yeah. Uh, look up a picture. You've got to see it. Uh, Wadlow died at the age of 22, though, uh, unfortunately, and he had serious health issues that seem to be associated with size. This might come as a surprise because our natural intuitions, as I've said earlier, sort of I think we group height as a health indicator. Yeah. We think of somebody who's very tall as somebody who's strong and healthy and, you know, they're, they're like uh, their body's doing good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the issue with Wadlow was that he, he encountered multiple problems because of his size. His, uh, he, he suffered from a condition where his body produced excess growth hormone, and it was continuing to produce excess growth hormone as he kept growing, and this just kept making him larger and larger. Yes, I believe the condition here is uh, acromegaly. Yeah, yeah, I think mm-hmm. so. Uh, but anyway, so he had uh, problems, and for example, what led to his death 
was that uh, Wadlow got an infected blister on his foot from braces that he had to wear on his legs mm-hmm. because of his size. And, and one of the problems that he would have is that he had very uh, little sensation or feeling in his lower limbs, mm-hmm. uh, pro- again, probably because of his size. The body is just not built to be that big. And in many cases, the supporting organ structures can't accommodate it. Uh, and so he, he got an infected blister that he wasn't really aware of because he had this lack of sensation in his lower limbs and he died at the age of 22. And also I've read in several places that there was no sign when he died at the age of 22 that his growth had stopped. Mm-hmm. He seemed to be still growing. So that's a sad story, but it doesn't introduce the idea that there are design constraints essentially on the human form. Yeah, I mean, you, you can also look at, at other cases of uh, acromegaly, at cases of gigantism. Acromegaly in, in particular, which is, again, uh, this is caused when the uh, anterior pituitary gland produces um, excess growth hormone. Uh, this can result in a number of different symptoms, such as uh, severe headache, arthritis and carpal tunnel syndrome, enlarged heart, uh, liver uh, uh, fibrosis, uh, bile duct hyperplasia, hypertension, um diabetes, heart failure, kidney failure, as well as cancer and loss of vision. Because, again, it's just the the design constraints. I often think about this in terms of like a business scenario. So say you have a food truck, right? Yeah. And you want to evolve that. You want to grow that into a, you know, a brick and mortar restaurant. And from there, you want to grow that into a restaurant chain. And from there, you want to grow it into a restaurant franchise. Each of those is not just a larger version of the preceding form. Yes. Each of those is a a more complex system. Um and and if you attempted to do to to achieve the goals of one with the with the smaller form there would be massive problems yeah i uh, i think that's a really good example and the the one i was actually going to use was the comparison of just regular buildings mm-hmm. like building a house versus building a skyscraper right. is a completely different type of project it's not just a question of scaling up the house you can't use the same materials and techniques that you would use in building a house to build a skyscraper because it's not going to work. I've uh, I've had to research skyscrapers for the other podcast that I do here on uh, uh, at How Stuff Works on Forward Thinking, where mm-hmm. we talked about the future of skyscrapers. And one of the things that impressed itself upon me from that is that skyscrapers aren't static. They're not like a building. They're really more like a giant machine because you have to keep in mind all of these incredibly uh, voluminous. Uh, amounts of things that are coming in and out, all of the heating and air, all of the plumbing, plumbing, you got to have pumps that get stuff up to the top of the skyscraper. Just the uh, transportation of people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Elevators, managing elevators. Like, so if you're in a hundred story building, y- y- can you just have normal elevators that go up and down like normal elevators? How long are you going to be on the elevator if you're trying to get up to an upper floor? Uh, so, you know, they've got to have uh, design considerations like that, express elevators and different types of elevator lobbies and stuff like that. Yeah, if I could remember correctly, this is like one of the major design problems with the highly conceptual um, Illinois mile-high skyscraper that Frank Lloyd Wright designed. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, tremendous, mile-high in the sky. But then when you start breaking down how people are going to get to the upper floors, how many elevators you're going to need, that's when you run into the real engineering yeah. uh, problems that prevent such a structure from coming to fruition. What do you do if there's a fire drill? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. It's bad enough when you just have, a, what, uh, you know, um, you know, 15 or so stories. Yeah. 
much less a mile of skyscraper up there. Yeah, so we should actually get into some of the examples of why it doesn't make sense to just continue scaling up the human body from its normal size. Indeed. So there's a... There's an author by the name of uh, R. McNeil Alexander, and he has a wonderful article titled Engineering Limits of the Body Size of Land Animals. And this is actually available in a couple of different forms. I, I have it in a, a big book of uh, scientific uh, essays about, like, big questions about life on Earth. Uh-huh. Uh, but he uses the example of King Kong. King Kong is a great example. It's a giant gorilla. And uh, as, as, as you know, as, as most people are aware, um, Wait, really, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I thought it was a giant human in a gorilla costume. Uh, no, no, it's uh, it's it's a real gorilla. No, but um, King Kong, as a giant gorilla, if if he were to step off of the screen and exist in our real world, he would collapse under his own weight. He would be one hundred and twenty-five times the volume of a real ape, loaded with one hundred and twenty-five times the weight of a real gorilla, and his legs would just simply snap like kindling. Hmm. So one way to look at this is to apply the the spherical cow example. And the what? Uh, you've heard of uh, s- s- this about the, you've heard about spherical cows, right? I don't think so. What is it? Okay, well, spherical cows in general uh, can it's sometimes refer. Anytime you take uh, an engineering problem and you like simplify something, mm-hmm. like we're talking about a cow, so we'll just make it a sphere, so as to. <laughs> more easily talk about it. Oh, okay. Uh, and sometimes it's a criticism of sort of physics approaches to solving problems, but it actually works really well in this scenario. Okay, so assume the cow is a sphere. Right. So as the sphere gets bigger, its volume increases more rapidly than its surface area. Mm-hmm. Double the radius of a sphere, and the surface area increases four times, and the volume increases eight times. Oh. So double something's size and keep its proportions the same, its weight doesn't uh, double or even quadruple. It increases by a factor of eight. Oh, okay. This gets into situations why you would to, to take a small creature and make it bigger, you would have to drastically change its proportions to support the weight. So, you know, King Kong, a giant human, the basic uh, morphography of the creature would have to upgrade as well. Yeah, okay, so the strength of the molecules and the bonds that make up your bones is not going to get proportionally stronger. It's going to be, you're dealing with the same molecules either way. And the same issue is you'd be dealing with the same energy constraints either way, right? Right. Like, so a proportionally uh, voluminous creature like this would have proportionally great energy needs and ways of uh, dissipating excess heat energy too, right? Yeah, it wouldn't just have to eat more bananas. Uh, there were, you'd have to take into account, uh, its hair, you'd have to take into account its metabolism. So as um, R. McNeil Alexander points out in his article, uh, a mammal 125 times heavier than its original form would need to metabolize 40 times as fast, Ugh. which means Kong would have to lose excess heat from his skin, which has only 25 times the area of a real to ape skin due to proportions. And he has all that super thick fur, five times as thick as a real gorilla's which is not going to help matters either. So not only would Kong collapse under his own weight, he'd then overheat and die right there on the pavement before he could ever climb the skyscraper. So then what's going on with these incredibly large animals that we do see? Uh, like, for example, I, I, I'm excluding uh, water-dwelling animals because once you're mm-hmm. living in water, that seems like it's a very different kind of environment and different things are possible. Uh, but uh, but these land-dwelling animals, like the the largest sauropods, the big dinosaurs, what's going on with them? Well, I mean, it's it's ultimately going to be more a matter of what's 
competitive in the struggle for existence, uh-huh. uh, as uh, as Alexander points out, because uh, I mean that's going to be the deciding point. Can the can the market bear it? Can the can the market allow a restaurant this huge to exist? Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's it's similar to you know giant aircraft, right? There are certainly giant aircraft that can be built. But will they be built? Will we, is there actually a reason to build it? And then if built, is there going to be a reason for it to remain a part of our aeronautic, uh, um, you know, kingdom? Yeah. 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 I, I wonder, and I've not looked this up. It just occurred to me. I wonder if there's an upper limit on the mass of a thing that we can make fly. Is there just an object so heavy that there's no way to make uh, a vehicle this heavy fly? That's a good question. Yeah. What is the, what is the heaviest possible? Air vehicle. This would be a fun one to explore, especially in light of, uh, you know, some of these Marvel films that have come out with the, uh, like the aerial aircraft carrier, yeah, uh, ships. You know. Well, I mean, I guess it would it would depend on whatever is the maximum limit on the uh, the the opposing forces that we can create. I, I'm assuming we're not using like gigantic balloons and stuff like that. If right. Going with uh, with uh, with fast flying airplane style. Yeah, balloons tend to be the the best way to get them up there. Uh, failing that, magical anti gravity. Uh, that's a good a one technology. too. Yeah, but I think it should be clear at this point that you can't just scale up the form. And uh, and and you mention also one thing about insects, right? This this also applies to other films of the 1950s, right? You know, you've got the giant spider invasion, Earth versus the giant spider, mm-hmm. the huge ants in them. Is it? Them, yeah, those huge ants. There are big bugs everywhere. Yeah, I mean, even things like um, I, I, I'm he- I hesitate to drag the xenomorph into, into all of this, but take say the Gartham from the Dark Crystal. You know, giant, mm-hmm. presumably exoskeletal creatures, or the, the giant crabs of, uh, of of various beloved works of uh, British horror. Um, <laughs> these largely just don't work when you start blowing them up that big because their exoskeletons would have to just get increasingly and eventually impossibly thick to support them because exoskeleton is not just armor. It is a skeleton. It is a supportive structure. Yeah, and if you'll allow me to go on a quick tangent from human height here, I, I, mm-hmm. do, I looked into this a little bit because I thought this was interesting. I was wondering why don't giant spiders Exist. I'm not sure exactly what the limitations on the upper uh, on on the upper end of insects and spiders are. Uh, could we have Bert I. Gordon's giant grasshoppers and stuff like that? And my guess was that it actually might have something to do with their open circulatory system, hmm. uh, being that you know spiders and and insects don't have uh, full body blood vessels like we do that maintain blood pressure and keep everything going to the right place. They've got open circulatory systems, meaning they might have some main artery, just like one big one or something like that. And then through a lot of the body cavity, the body fluids and the blood, or they don't have blood exactly like ours, but their oxygen distributing juices are just kind of loose. Yeah. They go wherever. It seems like that system works less and less well the bigger you get, the more you've got gravity pulling down on those body fluids. But anyway, I decided to look into this, and what do you know? I could not find any scholarly articles on why insects and spiders can't grow to the size of tour buses. 
Uh, this seems like a massive oversight. Somebody needs to start a peer-reviewed journal for this. But uh, I did find some pop science articles that at least interviewed some insect physiology experts to uh, to get their informed opinions. And so there was a 2012 piece on Science World that spoke to a few experts about why we don't encounter giant spiders. Uh, the spider systematist Wayne Madison of the University of British Columbia uh, just suggested the general issue of scaling like we've been talking about here. A guy named Rod Crawford at the Burke Museum in Seattle suggested that the main problem could be respiration, actually, because a spider has to oxygenate its tissues and purge carbon dioxide through a system based on breathing tubes called trachea and book lungs and also copper-based blood. And Mm. its respiratory system just would not scale up because it couldn't get enough oxygen to all the parts of its body fast enough. And the author points out that this could be the reason we see fossil evidence of much larger insects like, you know, those huge hawk-sized dragonflies Uh living at a time when Earth's atmosphere was more oxygen rich than it was today. So there used to be a higher composition of oxygen in the atmosphere. And so these less efficient, uh, uh, you know, bug breathing systems could uh, could get more oxygen to more tissues that way, allowing a bigger bug. There was also a 2012 article in Live Science that interviewed an insect physiologist named John Harrison at Arizona State, and he had a couple of hypotheses. Uh, he mentioned the exoskeleton limitation problem that we mentioned, uh, but he also notes that one study has shown that exoskeletons don't necessarily become thicker as insects get larger, so this may n- not actually be the constraint. Oh, okay. Uh, he also he points to the open circulatory system that I mentioned as a potential problem. Uh, he also mentions the respiration issue and uh, and these these ancient dragonflies that existed 300 million years ago that could have these giant wingspans, huge bodies, run around preying on other uh, on other animals. But finally, he he suggests something that's interesting to me, which is that it's uh, not just a physical architectural constraint, but an evolutionary constraint. This came up earlier when we were talking about uh, pressures on the island rule. You mm-hmm. know, why might why might uh, sometimes animals want to be smaller? And he he mentions that bigger insects prove more enticing meals to insect eating predators like birds and mammals. So they've got more nutrition in them. They're, they're just better to eat and it's harder for them to hide and go unnoticed. So there could simply be a strong selection pressure against larger insects and spiders based on the rate of predation. Yeah, there's just so many predators out there. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, it doesn't pay evolutionarily speaking. To get bigger. And so finally, I want to conclude with the idea of I wonder if there's anything like that that applies to human beings Hmm. Uh, other than just the limits on what's architecturally possible with our body plans as they are. Are there any selection pressures that would keep humans smaller? I mean, I can't tend to think of any, but. That doesn't mean they're not there. Maybe I just don't have enough an imagination on this. You mean like, scenarios in which a larger person would would not have a like a breeding advantage. Exactly. Or, hmm. Well, I mean, we're at the top of the food chain and have been for so very long. It's hard to imagine predation playing in. Right. You could. I mean, I guess you could maybe make a case for uh, sexual compatibility between males and females in some scenarios. Mm-hmm. Without you know getting too nitty gritty in the details, but I mean I don't know that could conceivably be an issue if two creatures cannot physically engage with each other, um, <laughs> you know that could become a, a that could uh, that could apply uh, some pressure on the evolution of the form. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I can't think of anything really, but I, uh, but I wonder, may- maybe you listeners out there have yeah. some ideas. What, what could be any possible evolutionary selection pressures favoring a smaller human being? Hmm. You know, I'm instantly, um, reminded, of course, of, uh, of, uh, just in terms of, uh, of dimorphism here, of, uh, cuttlefish, various cuttlefish where you have, uh, both the large males and the smaller males, both vying to breed with the female. Yeah. And the larger male breeds by just sort of, you know, he's fighting off, uh, competitors. Yeah. And the, the smaller male will use, uh, deception. We'll sneak in there. We'll pretend to be a female so as to get closer to the female, sometimes taking on the appearance of a male on one side of its body while taking on the appearance of a female on the other side and getting in there close enough and then breeding with the female while the big scary male is guarding it. So this being an example where you see both big and small bodies, both large and small forms, having uh, reproductive advantages. So that's that, one possibility. That's fascinating. I hope that doesn't uh, so much apply to human beings. Yeah, I don't think it's, it, it applies <laughs> one-to-one to the complexities of, of human uh, human love and human reproduction, but uh, it's worth keeping in the back of your mind. Yeah. You All got right. Anything else? I think that's it. I mean, we covered everything from Phantasm to the Amazing Colossal Man, from giant spiders to giant gorillas to people in space. So I feel like we uh, we, we did it justice. In the meantime, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, videos, links out to our various social media accounts, blog posts, you name it. It's all there. Hey, wherever you listen to us, uh, whatever uh, means you have to get this podcast, if they have a way to leave a review, give us some stars, what have you, do that because that's a great way to support this show, um, tweet various algorithms, and ensure that we can give you episodes each and every week. And also, if you want to get in touch with us about this episode or any other, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 